All right, let's look at our scripture this Palm Sunday. This is the triumphal entry when Jesus comes into Jerusalem, the final week of his life before he is crucified. Uh, This is John 12, 12 through 28. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was they had heard that he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after him. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The word of the Lord. Well, I was in the uh, supermarket getting my weekly dose of news. Uh, from the variety of very fine periodicals that one might find uh, in the newspaper aisle. An excellent, by the way, 90th birthday tribute to Loretta Lynn, uh, the toughest gal in showbiz. I totally agree. I did not know that she contacted ghosts in creepy seances, though. That definitely makes me a little bit nervous about Loretta. But uh, great stuff to be found here. But I also saw something, uh, a wonderful, wonderful uh, article here, our magazine, on Jesus. Who is he? And uh, invariably around the Easter season, these start to come out on the magazine aisles, right? You've seen them. The questions, who is this person, Jesus of Nazareth? It's very interesting that we continue to ask these questions, right? 2,000 years after his death and resurrection. Jesus affects all of us. He's certainly the most popular and most controversial figure in all of history. And why does he continue to capture the public's imagination? Well, I think it has to do with what he said, for one thing. Jesus said things like, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I've come from the Father, that I and the Father are are one, that Jesus was saying that he was God. But even more so, what he did. There have been 113 billion people who have walked this earth. All have gone into the tomb, into the grave, and only one has come out of it under his own power, Jesus Christ. 
And Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. In other words, what I have done for myself, I intend to do for all of those who follow me. And so we must know who this person, Jesus Christ, is. Because the question is personal. It deals with something that we are all facing. In this triumphal, triumphal entry where Jesus is entering Jerusalem, we see three different groups who have three different opinions on the person of Jesus. There were spectators, there were seekers, and there were saints. All of us fall into one of those categories. And so my hope and desire is by the end of this sermon, you would be able to also say where you stand as regards the person of Jesus Christ. Am I a spectator? Am I a seeker? Or am I a saint? So let's look at these three different groups and learn a little bit about them. First, the spectators. Jesus is heading to Passover in Israel, in Jerusalem. It is the time of the Passover feast where, is, uh, where Jerusalem swells to millions of people. It is their big, big feast. And Jesus has stopped in Bethany, which is a village about two miles from Jerusalem. Bethany is the place where Jesus raised Lazarus from the grave. And when people hear that Jesus is there, this crowd begins to form. This is the day before the triumphal entry. In verse 9, we see a large crowd finding out that Jesus was there came, not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, who he had raised from the dead. So Jesus stays the night in Bethany. And the next day, he begins to go to Jerusalem. And we see in verse 12 that there was a large crowd, large crowd that had already come to the feast. They were already in Jerusalem, heard that Jesus was coming from Bethany to Jerusalem. And so they come out to meet Jesus. And why did they do that? We see in verse 18, the reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard that he had done this sign. In other words, this story about what he had done uh, to Lazarus, had been circulating in Jerusalem, stirring up the people. The people wanted to see this person, Jesus. And so we see that the crowd that had been in Bethany starts walking with Jesus, and the crowd from Jerusalem comes out to meet Jesus. And this flash mob begins to form around Jesus. Thousands of people, maybe tens of thousands of people, so much so that in verse 19, the Pharisees say that the whole world has gone after him. Jesus, in verse 14, finds a young donkey and sits on it, fulfilling this prophecy in Zechariah 9.9, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. The people would have known this messianic reference in Zechariah, and so they see this one who's supposed to be the king of Israel coming, and they conclude that he is the Messiah. And so what does the crowd do? They take branches of palm trees, and they go out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. Now, the palm tree was the symbol of the goddess of victory, whose name was Nike, so I don't know why we have the swoosh on the side of the shoe. It should be a palm tree. But whatever the case, the, the palm tree was the symbol of victory. 
If an attorney won a court case, he would adorn his front door with palm tree, with palm leaves to indicate victory. Palm leaves would be waved when a, a general would come back from conquering another army. And so this has the picture of a conquering general coming to Jerusalem. Another gospel says that they took their cloaks and they laid them on the ground before Jesus as he came. Another thing they would do for conquering military generals. See, that's how they see Jesus. They think that he's a conquering king. And so they shout out Hosanna, which means save us. Blessed is the one who comes, the king of Israel. Now we have to ask the question, what are they expecting Jesus to save them from? The concept of Messiah had changed over the centuries from the Old Testament to the current time of Jesus. In the Old Testament, the picture of the Messiah was one who would come, who would restore the Israelites' relationship with God. He was one who would bring reconciliation. He was one who would bring a new heart to the people, a new obedience, a new faithfulness to God. But over the centuries, as the uh, nation of Israel had been oppressed by external nations, it had changed into a picture of a Messiah who would come and restore the kingdom of Israel to glory. Someone in the mold of King David, a, a soldier king who would come and destroy enemies and usher in a new era of prosperity. And so the reason that the people are doing all of these things is because they are expecting Jesus to lead a military revolt. That's the wild adulation. That's what's going on here. But you see, the people are not picking up the clues. Jesus arrives on a donkey, not a stallion. The way that a general, by which a general approached a city, communicated his intentions. If he was mounted on a stallion, it meant he came for war. But if he was mounted on a donkey, it meant he came for peace. Jesus is on a donkey. If the people had read the rest of Zechariah 9.9, they would see that the scripture said that I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim, Israel, and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. Jesus is not coming for war. He's coming for peace. And when Jesus comes to Jerusalem, he doesn't proclaim a judgment over it. He weeps over it. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, he said, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing? I'm sure there's some confusion as the people watch Jesus weeping over Jerusalem. And as Jesus enters Jerusalem, he does not head toward Herod's palace or toward the praetorium, but rather toward the temple, where he proceeds to drive out the money changers and cleanse the temple. As the crowds are watching all of these things, I can imagine their palm trees, their palm leaves beginning to droop as they are overtaken by confusion and disappointment. See, they were expecting a Jesus who would give them their heart's desires. 
They wanted a Messiah who would bring them victory and help them fulfill their ambitions and lead them to prominence. And one week later, when they did not get what they wanted, they were instead of shouting Hosanna, shouting crucify him, crucify him. See, he was not the one they wanted. Well, 2,000 years have passed, and many people have the same expectation of Jesus today. Modern America has created a false religion of self-fulfillment and called it Christianity. Many churches preach a Christianity where Christ's mission is to help you reach your dreams and your happiness. The truth is many people in this country try Jesus. And what is it that they are looking for? One who can give them whatever they wish to have in this life, be it wealth or health or comfort or ease. They see Jesus as a great therapist who comes to make us feel good about ourselves and to empower us to reach our life's goals. See, to many of us, the problem is out there in our circumstances. And what we need Jesus to do is to change our circumstances. Some even strike a bargain with Jesus. I'll follow you if you give me what I want. But the truth is, just like it was back then, they won't find what they're looking for. And we, if we are seeking Jesus in that way, will ultimately leave disillusioned and upset. Because the Jesus that those people were looking for was not the real Jesus at all. They were looking for a servant not a savior. There are a lot of great stories in literature about unfulfilled expectations. One of my favorite is called The Monkey's Paw by W.W. Jacobs. And it takes place at the turn of the 20th century. And it centers around Mr. and Mrs. White and their adult son, Herbert. They're visiting in the story with a friend who has returned from India. And this person in India shows them a monkey's paw, something he had acquired in India. And he said that a, uh, uh, an Indian sage had performed a spell over it, and it had the authority to grant wishes. But they often had unintended, even dangerous consequences. But Mr. White wants it and ultimately persuades this man uh, to sell it to him. As the man leaves, Herbert, the adult son, suggests that they ask for 200 pounds uh, to help with their mortgage. And the, they feel uh, the, the monkey's paw move, and they believe that this is going to happen. And so the next day comes, and they're excited for these 200 pounds uh, of British money to show up. They're a little disappointed when the mail comes and it's not there. But they get excited when later in the day... Um, uh, at about four o'clock, a, a man dressed very nicely shows up at the, at the door. This is just Mr. and Mrs. White. Herbert has gone to work. The man shows up and communicates to them that there's been an accident at the mill where Herbert was working, and he was killed. And the compensation for his death will be 200 pounds. See, they were looking for something but they did not get what they were looking for. We think we know what we want. We think we know what will satisfy us, and we want Jesus to get it for us. 
He is a sort of monkey's paw. But Jesus will not get it for us. He will not get us what will ultimately hurt us. Because what we want is not what we need. Jesus instead came to do something to us instead of for us. Because the problem, my friends, is not out there. The problem is in here. The problem is each one of us is a sinner. We don't love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. We don't love our neighbor as ourselves. And that's the way God made us. And so as a result, we hurt other people. We hurt ourselves. See, that's why the world is so screwed up. Because we're so screwed up. Think of the misery that you have experienced in your life. Where has it come from? Either the choices that we have made or the choices that other people have made and thrust upon us. And the consequence of sin is always death. Now we can try turning over a new leaf, but ultimately we can discover we can't because the problem isn't here. We need a new heart. Jesus did not come to free those people from the Romans. He came to free them from themselves. And Jesus did not come to give us our heart's desires. But he came to give us new hearts and replace our desires. So have you figured this out yet? Have you figured out that the problem is in here? What do you pray to God for? Save me from difficulties. Free me from a hard life. Give me a good life and fill my desires. Or do you pray to God and say, I'm broken. I need your mercy. I need your forgiveness. I need a new heart. We must recognize that we need saving, not them. Because until you recognize that, you won't recognize Jesus. Jesus gives his life so that we might have life. So give your life to him that he may give life to you. Well, that's the spectators. Let's talk a little bit about the seekers. In verse 20, we see among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. Now, they weren't just people from Greece. He's referring to Gentiles, non-Jewish people. They were not Jewish, but they were God-fearing. They had a sense in their souls that this was the one true God. And they had come from far away seeking to worship him, seeking God. And so they came to Philip and they asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Why? It's like Jesus said, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened. And so they had seen something in Jesus and they wanted to know who really is he? What has he come to do? Philip went and told Andrew and Andrew went and told Jesus, these guys are, want to speak to you. And in verse 23, Jesus answered them. The hour has come for the son of man to be glorified. This is a strange answer, right? Jesus said, these guys want to see you. And Jesus answers them. The son 
of man, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. What Jesus is essentially doing is saying, I'm not going to tell them who I am. I'm going to show them who I am. The hour has come, Jesus says. And we know in the book of John, whenever Jesus refers to the hour, he's referring to the hour of his death. In other words, it's time for me to die. And he refers to his death as being glorified. Just so strange because crucifixion was not an act of glorification. It was a punishment of shame. See, the Romans had made crucifixion, so it was not just an execution. It was a humiliation. Whipping and scourging someone and then forcing them to carry their own cross and then prominently displaying them, stripping them naked and crucifying them on a hill so they would know not to do this to Rome. How can Jesus say that this is the hour that he's going to be glorified? He answers in the next verse, verse 24. Truly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. See, as long as that grain of wheat, which is sprouted up above the ground, keeps on being just a kernel, it remains just that, a lone kernel of wheat. But it's only when it's detached from the head and buried in the ground does it produce more grain. Agriculturally speaking, one grain of wheat can produce eight or ten more heads with over 40 seeds per head. An exponential multiplication of life from that one seed dying. Jesus is saying that I am the seed of Abraham, the one God said through which he would bless the world. And Jesus could have chosen not to die and stayed in heaven in all of his glory alone. But Jesus chose to die that he might bring life to many through his death. Colossians 1.21 says, But you were once alienated from God and were enemies in your mind because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. It's in Jesus' death that we are born again to new life without blemish free from accusation and condemnation, given a new heart and a new spirit. See, when that seed falls to the ground and gives birth to new seeds, they all have the same nature and character as the seed that they came from. Jesus did not come simply to make bad people good. He came to make dead people alive. So what does it mean that Jesus is saying that I will be glorified? He's saying that in doing this for you, you will be able to see my true character. That I am a rescuer, a life giver, full of compassion, abounding in love and covenant faithfulness. And there was a cost, my friends. Verse 27, Jesus said, now is my soul troubled? What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. 
Jesus' soul is troubled because he is going to undergo an excruciating death and put on his own shoulders the weight of the sins of his people and be separated from his heavenly father who he has been with from all eternity. And yet in spite of that, he says, shall I be saved from this hour? No. For this purpose, I have come. The Greeks wanted to see Jesus. And Jesus is saying to them and to us, look to the cross and you will know who I am and why I came. I don't know if you remember what happened January 13th, 1982. I remember it because I remember watching it on the TV. I was 10 years old living in the outskirts of Washington, D.C., And that was the time, it was unusually cold weather, when the Air Florida jet took off from National Airport and failing to gain air, it crashed into the 14th Street Bridge, killing four motorists and plunging into the Potomac River. There were 79 occupants in that plane, and only six survived the crash and were able to get out of the plane and were floating in the freezing water. One's name was Arland Williams. And as people helplessly looked on from the bridge, it seemed all but certain that all would perish. Well, the helicopter finally arrived. And according to the other five survivors, Arland Williams continued to help the others reach the rescue ropes being dropped by the hovering helicopter, repeatedly passing the line to others instead of using it himself. This is what the Washington Post said. He was about 50 years old, one of half a dozen survivors clinging to the twisted wreckage bobbing in the icy Potomac when the first helicopter arrived. To the copter's two-man park police crew, he seemed the most alert. Life vests were dropped, then a flotation ball. The man passed them to the others. On two occasions, the crew recalled, he handed away a lifeline from the hovering machine that could have dragged him to safety. The helicopter crew who rescued five people, the only persons who survived from the jetliner, lifted a woman to the riverbank, then dragged three more persons across the ice to the safety. Then the lifeline saved a woman who was trying to swim away from the sinking wreckage, and the helicopter pilot returned to the scene, but the man was gone. Arlen Williams gave his life to save other lives. And on June 6, 1983, Williams was posthumously awarded the United States Coast Guard's Gold Life-Saving Medal in an Oval Office presentation to his family by Ronald Reagan. See, that Easter Sunday, Jesus went into the freezing water. Why? Because our debt was so great that while man alone paid it, owed it, only God could pay it. Jesus went in to get us out. Jesus gave his life so that you might have life. So we must see Jesus this Easter season for who he really is. The one who falls to the earth to give us life. What Jesus is holding out for you and me today is life. We are all sinking, but God has made a glorious way. 
through his sacrifice on the cross that we might have new life. You know, the crowds were actually right in the way they celebrated him. Palm trees should leave should have been waved because Jesus achieved victory for us on the cross. They should have shouted, Hosanna, because he is the only one who can save us. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. That's Jesus Christ. So let us too celebrate him this Easter. Let us say to him, Hosanna, save me. Let us receive his rescue. Because Jesus gives his life that you and I might have new life. So give your life to him that he may give life to you. This brings us to our final group, the people that actually grab the rope, the saints. Do you know if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you are called a saint. You see, Arlen passed the helicopter line to others, but they needed to take it from him. Have you? Jesus explains how to take the line in verse 25. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. See, there's the first group that loves their life. They're content and they're satisfied where they are. I don't need rescue. I don't need a savior. I wouldn't mind a servant. But I don't need this Jesus. The scriptures say that you're sinking. That ultimately you will lose your life. Because you will come under judgment for your sins. And you will have no one to answer for them but yourself. See, heaven is a very real place. And so is hell. But there's a second group. A group that hates his life in this world. A group that recognizes I am broken. And I am sinful. That I am rightly judged. And I need rescue. This is the group that embraces Jesus and takes the lifeline of the cross. Jesus says, whoever is in that group will keep their life for eternal life because they will receive a new life and they will not come under judgment, but rather receive the righteousness of Jesus Christ. How be in the second group? Verse 26, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor me. In other words, to take the rope, you must follow me. You must trust in me. You must leave your old life to embrace the new. You must take the role of a servant and take me as your master. And if you do, where I am, my servant will be also. In other words, Jesus says, I will come in and be with you. I will give you a new heart and start a new relationship with you. And you will never, ever be alone or have to be afraid. Because if anyone serves me, my father will honor him. We no longer have to live life with shame and impending judgment and condemnation from God. Rather, 
we can be clothed today with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And what you will receive is the honor of the Father. The God of the universe who says, I am proud of you. You are my son. You are my daughter. And that's ultimately what we're looking for. The glory that comes from God alone. In the crowd that day, there were spectators, there were seekers, and there were saints. The saints were those who trusted and followed Jesus, those who took the line. So take the line if you have not already. Trade your life for his. Serve and follow him. And the result is eternal life and the honor of the Father. Jesus gives his life so that you might have life. So give your life to him that he may give life to you. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you came to earth and you went in the water for us. And through the cross, you drew us out of death, out of suffering and condemnation and gave us a new life. I pray that no one within the earshot of my words would leave this place without deciding to trust and follow you, for you are the way, the truth, and the life. And in you is resurrection and hope. We pray all of these things in Christ's name. Amen. Now is the time in our service where we worship through our offering. Uh, we do not pass a plate here at Redeemer. Rather, we have offering plates in the foyer. If you wish to give uh, your offering to Redeemer, you can do so after the service on your way out. If you're new to Redeemer, don't feel compelled in any way to give. We're just glad that you're here and you're with us today. Let me pray for our offering. God, we pray that you would use this offering to strengthen and build up your church that we would proclaim the glorious news of Jesus Christ to this world and to one another. Um, and you would build up your church so that you would be clearly seen. And we pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen. <laughs>